Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicNPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Marco Casanova, who is author of Branding IT 3.0. Today we will discuss brand management. Marco Casanova is the founder and managing partner of the Branding Institute, which he began in 2002. He serves in various executive boards and does consulting as a strategic advisor for Bayer, Credit Suisse, among other enterprises in international organizations, associations, and countries, and their governmental institutions in brand and reputation-guided stakeholder management. He was the founder of the Community of Internet COI Branding in Switzerland, as well as co-founder and co-chairman of the International Brand and Reputation Community in Breck, where ABB, Alliance, Bayer, Bosch, Henkel, Hilti, Mercedes, Schindler, Shell, Siemens, and UBS meet regularly. He is an international speaker for several executive management programs, for the United Nations and conferences in Europe, China, India, and South America. Marco Casanova, welcome. Thank you very much, Elena. It's great to be with you today. What are we referring to when we say branding IT 3.0? That implies that there's a branding IT 1.0 and 2.0. What does the IT refer to? Uh, the, the IT rather means it. So it's it's the verb by saying, like, just do it. But of course, it has a double meaning. Uh, it means also that IT as a, as a technology uh, starts to influence significantly the way that we build brands all over the world. What is the 1.0 reference to. You talk in the book about how we have evolved from branding 1.0 to the next step and then the next step, which is where you say we are, branding 3.0. Would you walk us through that, please? Yes. Um, it's very interesting to, to, to go back 100 years ago where really brand management started when we speak of organizations like in Switzerland, Nestle or Unilever or Procter & Gamble, they started to gather a lot of experience when it comes to product branding. So the first era of becoming more professional in managing brands was really focusing on the product brand. And this I call branding 1.0. And, and you can find analogies in, in other fields. It's a kind of blueprinting era. You knew exactly how to do it. It's like a cooking recipe. You know what you want to cook. You want how to get, how to get there. And you just do it. Because it was a pretty orderly world. Because the relationship that you were up to build and then to further develop was a one-way street. You as a brand, you started to communicate and the potential customer was listening. Uh, you, you call it also push marketing activities, right? So it was a one-way communication via the mass media. So this is basically the push branding that I refer in 1.0. Would and you give us an you, example? Yeah, we have all, all fast-moving consumer goods who basically uh, very much have, have developed their brand relationship by, by just communicating in an era where we didn't have any internet, for example. So you had um, brands like, like Adidas or a Nike who, who very much were successful um, and success in brand management always means that you can ask a price premium. So if we think that basically these companies, they were selling shoes, still they are doing this today, but they can sell these shoes to a significant higher price than to the production cost. Why? Because they were able to brand their product in a way that started emotionally to mean something 
to a lot of people that were willing to pay more for this specific branded product than to a comparable other sneaker producer. And then we evolved to something more complex. Yes, what we what we find then is it's really that uh, branding 2.0. We saw that some 20 years ago, more and more, the consumers started also to be interested what kind of a company is behind these product brands. So we speak of corporate social responsibility. And they wanted really to understand if the company is ethically also treating their employees and the suppliers in a, in a positive way. So what we can say is that uh, we started an era of engagement branding where you reached out as a brand to the consumers, but not only the consumers responded to you, but they were stakeholders. They had a stake of interest in your behavior as an organization. Right. So if we continue with this example with Nike, you may remember that Michael Jordan was once on a press conference be asked by a journalist how he feels about to earn so much money as an endorser for Nike, knowing that Nike is sewing their products in third world countries and where eventually children not going to school are paid one dollar a day of sewing this kind of products. So you see that, that it was not anymore just the product brand where the people were interested in and where you could, as an organization, reach out to build a relationship. But the people became more critical by understanding what are you standing as an organization, what are your values, what is your purpose as an organization. So the stakeholder approach became more and more relevant. Because if I go to a, to a sports shop, in this moment I have on my hat as a consumer, and, 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 and I try my, my Adidas or Nike sneakers and then I like them or I like them not. But the very same day, eventually I read a newspaper or I follow a program in TV where I see that the same brand that I today had an experience in a shop is addressed and criticized for, uh, for behavior. So in this moment, I'm not a consumer but I'm a member of society and I get interested to understand if this organization overall is not just producing good quality products, but also behaving in a way that I can stand behind, that I actually also can identify myself. And if I can identify myself, I will continue to buy these products I eventually will even purchase shares in the stock market of this um, company because I, I feel committed to their vision and, and, and I'm proud to, to belong to this company. Or in the other way, of course, if, if I'm more critical towards the activities of this organization, it's not just that um, I will not buy shares, but I eventually will start to boycott also their products. So it will hurt the organization also financially. I remember, and this was a striking moment here when it comes to, to the reputation management of, of big companies. We had in the 80s the situation where Shell wanted to sank a, a platform. They didn't need this platform anymore. It, it was in Brand Spa. It was 80 miles away from, from the UK in the sea. And Greenpeace started really a, a huge campaign by the end asking the consumers to boycott the gasoline of Shell. And alone in Germany you had in the first week after Shell uh, uh, was, was um, charged by, by, by Greenpeace and criticized, 20% less turnover. So the Germans have not changed their behavior towards gasoline overall, but towards this company where they said, even if you legally are entitled to sank this island in the sea, 
we feel that it's illegitimate to do so, and that's why we try to force you through our wallet to rethink your your business um, decision. And by the end, Shell didn't sink the brand spa platform. We are, to some degree, still in that place today, right? There are still many people with a social conscience who vote with their wallets, as you just described. Absolutely. So what we see is, is not that um, branding 1.0 has completely gone away and now it has become 2.0 and 2.0 has gone away and now we are purely in the 3.0 era. It's more that um, the branding 1.0 is still there. You still have as a manager to define what is state-of-the-art product brand management, but it has increased the complexity because it's not just about how do you manage a product, but how do you actually manage the corporate brand when it comes to different stakeholders, because different stakeholders have eventually different expectations towards you as a company. So it's a little bit like this... uh, this, we know them very well here in Europe, these this Russian puppets where you can open them and they become smaller and smaller, right? The same is here. You have the, the branding 1.0 at the core, but then you have now a, a bigger frame around this branding 1.0 that is this engagement branding where, where you have the stakeholder expectations and where you basically have to manage as a company every touch point uh, in a way that it becomes a trust point in the eyes of the stakeholders. How do we get to branding 3.0 and how is that distinct from the other places where we have been? Yes, the further development into branding 3.0, and this is basically the era we are in today, um, I call it the collaborative branding. So you have to reach out to the stakeholders and and you have as a brand to, to strengthen and further develop the brand relationship towards your stakeholders. You give, you have to give to the stakeholders the opportunities to interact with the brand, you have to empower them and uh, eventually also that, that they have uh, the possibility to co-create. So if we take this example of the sneakers uh, one step further, I, I was two years ago with my daughter in New York and, and we went to the Converse uh, shop in Soho and, and my daughter was able to customize her own Converse sneakers. So she got inspired by a lot of Converse shoes in the shop, but then she sat uh, down at the computer and she was able to design, uh, being it the shape, the color, if, if, if her favorite number or her name should be printed, and if yes, in which color, in which type of wear on the shoe. So she created her unique sneaker. And, and the moment she put send and, and I put in my, my credit card information, um, we were able to, to come back 24 hours afterwards to the Converse shop and she got her two pair of sneakers that were very unique, worldwide unique, right? And in this moment, the two of us were more than willing to pay uh, a significant higher price for these unique sneakers than uh, than we would have been willing to pay if they would just have been standard sneakers. In this case, you're willing to pay a premium for the product because of the high customization, the ability to make a sneaker that was customized to her taste. So what I'm hearing you say is that that prompted you, that made you willing to pay more for that product than the product was actually worth. The brand became more desirable because of that customization. Is that right? 
Absolutely, it, it means much more um, to, to me as a father because every time that she is wearing these sneakers, I remember the moment I was together with her and eventually she listening also to to one advice of me saying I would not mix these two colors because eventually they get blurry on the shoe, right? So so it was a, uh, on one side a very nice father-daughter experience that the brand allowed us to experience and by the end we got a product that that made us proud and the price was not so much in the focus in this moment. So what we see is basically in branding 3.0, we have two aspects. We have this collaboration aspect where the stakeholder, you remember what I said, branding 1.0, where it's, it was really the, the one-way street communication that the brand just communicated through advertisement and, and TV commercials, and the consumer just could receive the information and made the decision. And, and today, it's really giving as a brand the opportunity to the stakeholder to get much more involved. So it's really an empowerment. And, and what helps this connectivity is, of course, bridging the digital and the physical world, where it becomes more and more um, common that you can really create also customized products for end consumers. So this mass customization, like you, you said it. So we go from push branding, where the seller, the brand, is in complete control, to this place where we are now that offers a mass customization Yes, absolutely, and where, where you really work in a collaborative way together, right? And and also in, in my book, uh, I have created uh, basically a model that I use uh, quite a lot the last couple of months with customers of mine. How can you further strengthen and how can you further develop the relationship with the consumers? And, and, and the first step, because the usual um, funnel is, and this was the branding 1.0 uh, funnel that we all were, were using, is that you need first to have a very high awareness level, right? And if the people know that you exist, you need to find ways that you enter into a reference set so that people consider your brand. For example, if you are a detergent brand, it's not just that they know your brand, but if they go to the supermarket and, and they stand there in front of the shelf, and out of these 20 detergent brands, they boil it down to five brands, and you need to be in these five brands, right? So this is this reference consideration, and the next step is then really that they are willing also to to take and to experience uh, your brand, and then ideally you increase step-by-step step their share of wallet when it comes to the product category that, that your product is in. So this is the classical funnel. Um, my pro procedure that I also explain in detail in, in my book is really that you say the first step, you have to encourage that the people have an interaction with the brand. And I give you an example that that uh, Roger Federer, uh, the most famous tennis player in the world, who who lives also close by here in Zurich in Switzerland, he's an ambassador and an endorser for Lindt chocolate. And the moment that that he has posted um, on his internet account and, and on Twitter a picture he visiting the Lynn Chocolate Factory. It got really viral. So that means that that he interacting with, with the golden rabbit, the chocolate rabbit of Lindt, huh? was taken by his fans and, and and you got really a huge amount 
of likes, um, people retacked it and so forth. So it got really a huge attention, a much higher attention than the same picture being published through the official link chocolate internet channels. Right? So you see, it was not so much the picture itself, but who actually has interacted with the brand that, that made it, uh, made the success of the, of the communication. Uh, so this is the first step, this encouragement of the interaction with the brand. Let's go to that issue of social media and interactions and likes. How much weight can we give to that positioning? There might be a lot of people willing to like a photo or a video, a post, a quote on social media, but those same people might not necessarily be interested in buying a product from that company, may or may not like the company. Do the, does that presence online translate into actual brand loyalty or brand awareness, and does it drive consumers to any actions? Is there any, are there any studies, is there any evidence that link the two? Well, I, I could not now uh, tell you uh, an empirical study that, that I have on my hand that, that really would prove this hypothesis. What I can say is out of my own experience that if, if you as an organization find a way that your employees are really proud to work for the organization because they um, identify with the purpose of the organization, they reach out in a completely different way to their communities being it physically on a tennis club or, or, or elsewhere, or also virtually by sharing their experiences, their convictions, and so forth, also with a much broader, more international community uh, via the Internet. So we have the situation that Bayer, the, the life science company from uh, located in Germany, who, who are up to... Uh, merge with Monsanto. They have started a rebranding uh, initiative and they started really with the employees because they said we need first to have the employees on board before we go to reach out with our repositioning of the brand to all kinds of, of other stakeholders, being it pharmacists or being it doctors, um, being it also farmers, because they sell not just uh, medicine, but they also say agriculture products. Uh, so it all started with the employees and, and um, being a lecturer at various universities. When I speak about this topic of employer branding, um, I make with my students, and these are master's students of business and administration, what I usually do is um, I put a list of companies on the blackboard and I ask my students for which company you could imagine to work for when you finish your studies here. And it's a list maybe of 10 companies and they are all companies who have the headquarters maybe 50 miles uh, away maximum from the university. And interesting for me is two things. The first thing is that I have never experienced over the last 12, 14 years that a student has raised his hand of saying, look, I cannot answer this question because I would need to know what kind of job is it, what is the salary, where am I located, who would be my boss. I need much more information. So this has never happened. The only information they have is the name of the company, and they feel absolutely fine by raising their hand with a couple of so-called corporate brands and um, or not raising their hands. And the second aspect uh, that uh, it's always very interesting for me is that you have a huge gap in between the top companies 
where eventually 85% of the students could imagine to work for, being it now in, in the University of, of Bern, the capital of Switzerland, the Swatch Group, who, who is 40 miles away from the university. So 85% of the students could imagine to work there. And when it comes to the Swiss Post, for example, a state-owned organization, there is less than 10% of the students who could imagine to work there. So what this means is that the Swatch Group, and this is uh, the reality, they can choose from the best um, business and administration master students from the University of Bern, and they pay them a significantly lower salary than the Swiss Post. Why? Because the moment that the student gets hired by the Swatch Group, they will send to all their friends the news that they go to the Swatch Group. And because this is such an appealing brand, they will get a lot of positive feedback from all their friends electronically. And you can be sure the moment they start there, they will share their experiences with Swatch on a continuous basis, also digitally. While if a student starts to work for a Swiss uh, post, he does not get so much positive credit from his friends by working for this organization, and then he will not share so much his experiences that he has down the road with this employer. Do you think that that concept expands beyond Europe? There are increasingly less favorable responses to corporations in the U.S. People increasingly have a less favorable opinion of many companies in the United States and feel that loyalty to an employer is at a very low place historically when they poll workers. Many people say that they hate the company they work for and that they don't like the environment, they don't like their boss, etc. Is it possible that the work environments in Europe and the companies themselves are viewed differently because they behave differently, because there are different rules or conditions, whatever the specifics are from Europe than what we see in North America and specifically in the United States? Well, my experience with the U.S., uh, I would say I don't see significantly a big difference. I, I can give you two examples. Uh, one is... Uh, a big international company based out of Switzerland, um, they wanted really to significantly increase their um, reputation in the U.S. So they started uh, activities, and, and one was really to actively influence certain rankings. So you have a lot of, of influential business magazines who publish rankings, best place to work, the most respected company, the, the most social company, the most uh, the, the greenest company, and so forth. So they define in which rankings they should move forward because the readers were eventually potential new employees. And, and uh, we supported them in doing this kind of ranking management, and, and they moved really significantly forward. And in one of these very prestigious rankings, they managed to, to, to become number one in their industry. And in the first two weeks after this ranking has been published, they got 500 additional applications from high potentials who all were referring to, the, to this uh, ranking saying, look, I'm studying at um, MIT and, and I got a scholarship and I'm the number one. I was always the number one in my batch in high school, in college and so forth. And I want to work for the number one. And you seem to be the number one. 
right? So we see that that uh, you have certain emotionalities in human beings, so-called trigger points, that, that if you are a very ambitious uh, person and you feel that this company is also very ambitious, and that this company is perceived as, as leading in, in their industry, then you, you identify with this company because you feel that your mentality will fit very well in this leading edge organization who is always in search of business excellence. And the second aspect, uh, eventually a second uh, example, we have a pharmaceutical company very well known in Europe. It's called Roche. And Roche, a couple of years ago, they acquired Genetech uh, in California. And Genetech still today has been kept as Genetech. Why? Because they had such a terrific reputation with all relevant stakeholders, especially also with students, that Roche has decided not, after having acquired Genetech, to brand it, to brand it Roche, because they said we would lose so much when it comes to this uh, emotional identification towards this company brand, that we are not doing that. So, there is really empirical evidence that that you see if, if, the, the, um, if the employees are proud to work for the organization, that they spread their proudness digitally, and that this has a significant impact on the overall reputation of a company. On the other side, I'm with you that, of course, today, especially the, the millennials and the digital natives, they tend to be more critical and also more demanding when it comes to to the workplace. So far, we have been discussing mainly fairly large multinational companies. Do these concepts apply to nonprofits, academia, and smaller companies? Many of the companies in the United States are have 10 employees or fewer. Yes. Do these principles that we're discussing of branding apply to them? This is my experience, absolutely. I used to be a professor at the, at the university in Bern before I, I really then focused on consulting and uh, and uh, becoming member of, of certain board of directors. And I have developed during this time when I was a professor uh, an integrated brand and purpose-guided stakeholder management model. And this model has five steps, and, and I explain also this model in, in detail in my book. And the questions are the same no matter if you are now a multinational or if you are an NGO or, or, or you are a, a small or mid-sized enterprise, but of course the answers are different, right? So it's like, like a red thread that, that guides you through the complexity of the stakeholder management. And it's also my experience in, in consulting that this model really serves very well, no matter in, in which kind of, of business reality you are in. And the second uh, aspect in my book that I feel that especially also the, the smaller businesses could benefit from, and this is also the, the feedback I get, because as you know, um, I have been awarded as a bestseller in Amazon. I was top three in the, in the global marketing ranking now for quite a while. Um, I have also developed, um, through this branding 1.0, an approach where I say, what are the 10 C's of branding, right? So, so it starts with capabilities, it, it continues with compellingness as a brand, 
Consistency is a very important aspect. You have to keep in mind competitiveness. The co-branding can play a major role, especially also for, for, for smaller uh, businesses. Then this corporate brand view we spoke about earlier on, the culture plays a role, so how much you uh, you contribute to the well-being of a society as an organization. The customer experience we spoke about is a, is a crucial aspect, this collaboration approach and this connectivity. And in all these 10 C's of branding, I also explain uh, what it is, how you can use this for this brand relationship towards the consumer and also, and, and this is something that people send me really uh, a lot of, of compliments and they like it a lot. I have more than 20 best practice examples in the book and out of these 20 best practice examples, half of them, they, they are small or mid-sized enterprises. So it's really a mixed so it, it's not a, a corporate book that I have written, but, but it's really, it can be helpful for all kinds of um, owners or managers from, uh, from various industries and, and sizes. In the book you say that a brand can be anything that describes the organization or the company, such as the name or a symbol. It could be an ad. It could be the product itself, or a slogan, a jingle. Tell us a little bit more about that and how you manage that. Are there several brands within a company? How do you approach that? Yeah, interesting is that uh, when, when I speak with, with 50-year-old managers, I, I rather don't speak about brand, but I speak about reputation because they used to learn in their ma marketing education that brand is just product brand. So what we have spoken about earlier on is branding 1.0, right? So this is still today true, like you said, that the brand is basically everything that it's like a package where you decide what is the size of the package, what is the form of the package, you decide um, the color, you decide all kinds of, of visual things, or eventually also um, what you said, a jingle and so forth. But if you go deeper into a brand, a brand is also a promise. A brand, and, and we spoke about it, has a lot to do with relationship. It has to do with trust. Because every time that you decide to buy a brand, you have to give a trust in advance because you do not know if this brand delivers on its promises. And that's why it's also, of course, helpful if you had a positive experience. So why are so many people willing to pay a price premium for a Starbucks coffee compared to another coffee? Because they like the atmosphere, because they like the way they are served, because they like the interior, because they like the quality of the product. So it's a, it's a whole experience if you enter into the Starbucks world. Or the same is uh, if you go to McDonald's, you trust that the cheeseburger is, is as good as the cheeseburger you had from McDonald's in another McDonald's in another state eventually a week or a month ago. So this consistency of delivering exactly the promise that, that you express as a brand is very crucial. So it has also to do with expectations. It has to do also with, with this emotional connection. So having said that, it all starts with the brand positioning. It all starts with the brand purpose that you have basically to to answer three questions as a brand owner. The first question is, what is our aspiration? So what do we want to achieve? What is our vision? What is our mission? The second question is, what are we standing for? So the identity of saying, what are our values? That we communicate, that we behave on every single day to try to achieve our vision. 
And by the end also, what are the core values that, that you expect from everybody who is involved to live up? And also to have basically the experience while consuming or entering into a relationship with your brand. So this is basically what I see today that the most valuable asset is really the brand positioning. Because everything else in marketing, you can be copied by your competitors. If you go down with the price, they also can go down with the price. If you find a very innovative distribution channel, the competition observes and they copy that. They copy even the products you are doing, right? So everything besides the brand personality can be copied by the competition. And the brand personality, if if you are able to create a unique brand personality in the eyes of the recipient, that means something to the recipient. This is something you can really build on. This is a, a sustainable value. I can, uh, as an example, uh, I can decide to try to become George Clooney, right? I could go to actor's class and I could try to look like him, to walk like him, to speak like him. I could even do uh, surgery that I look similar like George Clooney. But what is my point? I will never be George Clooney because he's unique in the eyes of the spectators. And I always will be perceived as a wannabe George Clooney because he managed to stand out as a brand. Right? And this is the same uh, with, a, with a product brand and even more important when it comes to a service brand because in a service uh, you put a lot of trust in people. If you go to a bank or if you if you decide uh, to, to close uh, an insurance uh, and to sign a new insurance, it has a lot to do because it's people business. If the chemistry in between the representative of this insurance brand, if the chemistry is right, if you feel understood, if if you feel that this person is trustworthy or not, that's why this branding plays a lot in a psychological level because human beings, and this is really shown in a lot of research, in 80% of the cases, we decide based on emotional motives and only 20% on rational motives. It seems that... These relationships, these emotional relationships that we develop with brands, either the ones that we like or the ones that we don't like, are based on perceptions that may or may not prove to be accurate. How do you manage a brand when what you are selling as a company is complex, and by that I mean it's one thing when you're selling, say, for example, coffee or candy versus selling something that is more diffuse, that is not perhaps tangible, or that has various components. You just mentioned banking, your relationship with your banker or with your bank, because increasingly people no longer have relationships with an individual, but rather with an institution. Uh, likewise, with insurance or with hospitals and healthcare facilitators, healthcare providers. How do you manage a brand when you have these difficult, complicated, multifaceted? products and services. Yeah, so so basically it's again it's a pro, it's a process. Um, I agree absolutely what you had said. It, it's my firm belief that the brand relationship becomes today the competitive advantage. And it becomes the core competence of success. So 
um, if we have, you mentioned um, the, the, the pharmaceutical uh, field. So, what, what we have observed and also empirically validated is that how does a, a relationship from a salesperson with a doctor evolves? So, the first step is that the doctor at the beginning of the month tells his assistant, look, if sales reps call you, this month I want just to be visited from these five companies. And from all the other companies, you tell them to call in a month, eventually then I will, I will meet with them. So, the first step, of course, it's the corporate brand, that it's the door open, that you as a sales rep, before even entering into a personal relationship with the doctor, the door opener is the brand on your business card, right? And if you are lucky enough to, to have a strong brand that is this door opener, it's really up to you. And what we found out is that who are the most successful sales reps? The one who have two degrees in, 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 in pharmaceutical and in chemistry education and so forth, or the ones who have a certain empathy, the ones who have communication skills, the ones who are able eventually through storytelling deepens the relationship with the doctor. And we found out that the second ones are much more successful because that they know what it's all about that they are selling, what kind of products. This is a hygiene factor. But the ones who really, as an example, uh, recently uh, we, we interviewed very successful sales rep who were always the same ones year after year. And, and they told us what they are doing. So, so one sales rep, I remember, he told us, look, I try to help the doctor to become more successful. And if he feels that I can contribute with my network, with my knowledge, with my experience, if he feels that I can contribute, that he is more easily able to achieve his objective, then he will share time with me. Then he's willing uh, to welcome me on a regular basis. So, for example, if you, if you wait for your appointment with the doctor and you speak with the assistant and the assistant tells you that the doctor is, is planning to open a second location and that he would be from Monday to Wednesday in one place and, and from Thursday to Saturday on, in the other place. With this information, you enter into, into the conversation with the doctor and you tell the doctor, for example, congratulations. I heard you are expanding. Have you already decided on your accounting software? He's not selling accounting software. He comes from a pharmaceutical company, right? But he speaks with the doctor about um, accounting software. And of course, you can be sure that most of the doctors will tell you, no, this is something I have not thought about. And then you say, yeah, well, I have two customers of mine, doctors, uh, and, and, and they have opened various places, and if you are interested, I could ask them what kind of accounting software they are using, that they are not anymore having an island solution in the software, but that it's uh, managing in a convincing way the complexity of their growing business. In most cases, the doctor will be absolutely uh, positive by saying, I would be appreciating very much if you could do that for me. So you see what I mean? If he just thinks as a sales rep, I go in, I try to sell as many packages as possible. This is exactly the attitude that the doctor feels. But if he comes in and he's willing to help the doctor by first finding out what is the objectives he has, and then helping the doctor to become more successful. The relationship strengthens, and then, of course, he has more time that the doctor spends with him, and then he, most of the time, also will be a much more successful salesperson by the end. You talk about the importance of 
value brand management in branding management that values and how that value culture is increasingly important. Tell us a little bit about that, if you would. Yeah, it was already in the 80s that that Archie B. Carroll has published his Responsibility Pyramid. And already by then, when I was a, a student at the university, it was very convincing for me, his approach. And this has a lot to do with what I said with branding 2.0 when it comes to this value-based positioning of a corporate brand. So he said, basically, we have four steps that we have to, to develop into as an organization. So the first step is the economic responsibility. It's clear that the expectation of the owners are that the business is profitable. Because you can have the, 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 the most fascinating projects in your head if you don't have money to pay the rent and, and, and the salary. These projects, they stay in your head. They will become never reality. So you need investors. And these investors, they want to be rewarded for their risk to investing into a business that you believe in. So the first step, of course, you need to be profitable. How profitable, if it's more short-term or long-term, this depends, of course, on the expectation of the, of the owner, of the, of the one who, who gives you the money. And the second step, of course, to protect your business, you need to have a certain legal responsibility. You need to respect laws, otherwise you are in problem. You, you, you go into problems. And then he said, and the third step, that more and more the society expecting for an organization is to be ethical. And he defines to be ethical, to doing what is right, reasonable and fair, avoid damage. And here you see it's, it's pretty vague. It's much easier if you ask a lawyer and say, how is the law? Can we do that or not? And then he tells you yes or no. But now we speak not about legal aspects, but we speak about is something legitimate to do or not. So are your values represented of a majority in your society or not? Because by the end of the day, it's society in a democracy who votes for politicians who then makes laws. And you as an industry and as an organization, you need a license to operate, you need a license to innovate, and you need a license to grow. And who gives you this kind of license? This is the society through the rules and regulations that are set up. And the fourth step that, that Archie B. Carroll is mentioning in his responsibility pyramid is the philanthropic responsibility. And we spoke at the beginning a little bit about this corporate social responsibility, so this entrepreneurial citizen engagement where you basically also help into the community with aspects that you do not earn any money, but you feel to give something back to society. Uh, I can give you two examples of this. Uh, we have the big company out of Europe, DHL, Deutsche Post, and they, of course, are one of the world leaders when it comes to logistics. And they have a rescue team who they send to, to, to crisis. So if you have in, in Haiti a, a huge climate catastrophe, they send their specialists because what is happening? It's not only that the whole infrastructure is destroyed, but a lot of goods are sent now to this place because government and, and private institutions want to help the people who, who got hurt there, but somebody needs now to manage. Uh, so you need an infrastructure 
in a destroyed environment that you understand what products come in, how can we store them? Because you can imagine if you store food not in a very good way, in this uh, challenging climate, the food gets rotten very fast. So how do we need to, to store this food and how do we distribute this food to whom? Right? So they do this without promoting this uh, to the world. They do this because they feel that they can contribute with their core competencies, not only by earning money and generating revenues for um, for their shareholders, but also to give something back to, back to society. Or a second example is uh, the, the multinational uh, with the headquarter in Switzerland, Nestle. Uh, Nestle is very big. I give you just one uh, one fact: they sell every day in the world one billion products in the B two C market. Uh, so you can imagine this is a huge organization, and what they are doing is that they feel responsible that their suppliers stay in business also in the next couple of years. So they share with their suppliers, who a lot of times are farmers, right? because the raw material that Nestle uh, needs, being it sugar, being it milk, and so forth, it's cultivated by farmers all over the world. And these farmers, they do not know what will happen in the next couple of years. They they don't have sophisticated research uh, possibilities. So Nestle, in their so-called shared value initiative, helps and helps to further develop to the farmers, to the future ex- expectations to stay in business as a supplier of a, of a company like Nestle. Because they feel that it's also their responsibility to make sure that suppliers who who try to do their best and who are reliable in delivering the raw material to to Nestle, that they have a fair chance also to survive with their families and with their community also in the years to come. So that's why, to sum up, um, I'm a a very strong believer in this value-based brand management because I I really see that organizations who also have this kind of aspect considered in their management decisions and activities, they are significantly more successful on one side because the employees are more proud to work for these organizations and and uh, and you have a much higher loyalty from all kind of stakeholder groups towards you what suggestions would you share for our listeners who want to learn more about this topic of brand management in addition to your book of course where else are there sites or other reference books that you feel would help them gain a stronger and deeper understanding of the topic and you see also our conversation we have touched a lot of 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 different aspects and and the, the interesting thing in brand management especially when we speak about corporate branding we need alliances in organizations. So you cannot, out of the brand management department, develop a successful employer brand initiative. You need the collaboration of HR. You need a hook in HR to develop cross-divisional activities. The same is you need a hook with investors' relations because you need to to justify that investments in brand management are not just expenses, but that they pay off, that they help to become more um, successful and also financially more successful. So you need to have a collaboration with the with the CFO, with the financial department. And I also in my book um, I 
I, I show through two financial metrics that the branding really drives business performance. Right? So we have all kinds of ideally partners in organizations. And I feel always very, uh, very challenged to try to understand their reality. Because I have a certain expertise with my uh, education, my experience, but these other departments, they have also education, expertise, and they come from another side. And it helps me, of course, if I do not just argue through my lenses, but that I try to understand from where they are coming from. Having said that, I feel that that uh, if if uh, you are interested to to really uh, enter into the brand management, uh, and this is an advice to your listeners, is that uh, also to really try to to understand what is state of the art in brand management when it comes to the relationship with HR. What are the expectations HR has? Or what is the expectation that the financial department has? And what we see today, what is really a buzzword that becomes more and more relevant, it's this digital transformation. Because this is today really on, on the desk of, of most of, of the top management. How do you deal with the digital transformation? Right? And for me, the definition of digital transformation at its heart, it's about making the organization effective in fast-changing environments. And here I recently have read a very interesting book, uh, and it's called Building Digital Culture, A Practical Guide to Successful Digital Transformation. And it has been published by the Coggan Page, uh, and the authors are Daniel Rolls and Thomas Brown. And, and I enjoyed very much reading, reading this book because it, it really focuses on the understanding the stakeholders. And, and how can you, through these digital transformation activities, uh, help to shape the culture into, into a, a prosperous way when it comes to, to the future challenges that you have as an organization. What three tips would you share with our listeners that they can take back to their work, to their practice, to improve their brand management? Yes, so, so if, if I do so, this kind of workshops with, with the management, my first question, to find the so-called USP, the unique selling proposition, my first question is always to say, who would miss you for how long and why if you should decide today to stop your business activities? Right. So what is it really that, that customers appreciate so much about you? And of course, it's, it's not an evident answer because most of the companies, they are exchangeable. But still, you need really to, to find something that, that helps you to stand out one way or the other. So this is, is my first advice to start with this kind of, of question. And then the second question is by saying, if we meet in five years from now and we open really the champagne bottle and we celebrate because we have achieved all the business objectives that five years ago we have defined in our workshop, what would that be? What would we celebrate in five years? And the third one is by, by saying, okay, now we have defined what we want to celebrate in five years. If we think back of today, what kind of car brand would we be as an organization? 
And what kind of animal are we today? So that means I'm not so much interested in the car brand and in the animal, but in the attributes that lead to the animal. And then the next question, of course, is if we think now in five years and we want and we have achieved all these objectives that we have written now on the board, what kind of car brand would we need to be in five years? So what kind of characteristics do we need to have that we feel today comfortable that we will reach this objective? And also what kind of animal would we need to be in five years? And then you see basically two things through this exercise. You see one side, if you have 10, 12 managers in the room, if it's a big suit today, if you have completely different characteristics and, and attributes today, or if it's pretty homogeneous, and especially also you see when it comes to the future, is it completely different characteristics and, and values, or is it pretty homogeneous like the managers see it? And then, of course, the most relevant aspect is, are, are it the same characteristics that they mentioned for today and in five years, or are they completely different ones? And if they are completely different ones, then you would rather need a revolutionary approach when it comes to change management. And if it's pretty stable, then it's more an evolutionary approach that you can choose when it comes to develop the corporate culture and to make it fit for the future. Thank you, Marco Casanova, for joining us from Zurich, Switzerland. Thank you very much, Elena. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Marco Casanova, who is author of Branding IT 3.0, Business Performance Through Excellence in Brand Management, who discussed brand management. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicMPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicMPR.com. That's editor at HispanicMPR.com.